Well, our subject today is um, Luke chapter 3, and it's the preparing for the Saviour's revealing. The subject, of course, that the main subject that we're following in the book of Luke is the, our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is uh, particularly significant in as much as, although it's not focused on the Lord, it is focused on somebody who's been called to prepare the way of the Lord. And therefore, it's equally important. It's good, I think, if we can just maybe spend a, a few minutes today just um, looking at John the Baptist and looking at what he was called to, looking at how he conducted himself and also looking how it impacted on the people around him in preparation for the coming Messiah. So if we could just maybe look at the, the, the chapter, we'll read it together, just the first um, 20 verses of chapter 3. Now in the fifth, 50th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, and Herod was tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip was tetrarch of the region of Ite. Ituria and Traconitus and Licinius was Tetriac of Abilene. In the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. And he came into all the district around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every ravine shall be filled up and every mountain and hill shall be brought low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough road smooth and all flesh shall see the salvation of the Lord. And he therefore began speaking to the multitudes who were going out to be baptized by him. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bring forth fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that God is able from those stones to raise up children to Abraham. And also the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the multitudes were questioning him, saying, What shall we do? And he would answer and say to them, Let the man who has two tunics share one with him who has none. And let him who has food do likewise. And some tax gatherers also came to be baptized, and they said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than what you have been ordered to. And some soldiers were questioning him, saying, And what about us? What shall we do? And he said to them, Do not make money from anyone by force, or accuse anyone falsely, and be content with your wages. Now, while the people were in a state of expectation and all were wondering in their hearts about John as to whether he might be the Christ, John answered and said to them all, As for me, I baptize you with water, 
but one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire, and his winnowing fork is in his hand to thoroughly clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations also he preached the gospel to the people. But when Herod the Tetrarch was reproved by him on account of Herodias, his brother's wife, and on account of all the wicked things which Herod had done, he added this also to them all, that he locked John up in prison. Again, this chapter starts um, as, as it tends to do when it's referring to um, this period of time. It's very specific. That in the history that tells you exactly who was in power, in what places, at what time. And it, I think it's pointing very clearly to the plan of God, that this plan that he had devised in the realms of heaven before creation, when the Godhead sat down and discussed all that was going to happen and made the decision, this is the way, look, thinking about it in human terms, that there would be a plan of salvation and it would take place precisely when they decided and here it was, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ when he was born in the stable. That precise moment was decreed years and years ago, before the beginning of time. And here is the, the next step, if you like, that as the Lord Jesus was growing up and was learning obedience and was perfecting his um, role, his position in earth, ready for his duties that he was going to complete at the will of his father. That there first of all had to be this man, John. He had a role to play and he had been called. He is somebody who had a specific role. He's a very interesting character, uh, John. Um, the Lord refers to John um, in Luke 7 that he was somebody of all the prophets he was the most supreme of man born of woman <laughs> so he wasn't obviously counting himself the Lord Jesus was way above all that way above all men but of all men born of woman John the Baptist was supreme and you think he, he doesn't command enough a lot of lines in the Bible. You don't read enough a lot about him. And what you do read, he seems a real odd character. And one that you wonder if, if you met him today, whether you would be at all attracted to him. Somebody who lived in the wilderness. Somebody who wore funny clothes and ate funny food. And uh, he acted very differently from all those around him. But I think the significant thing is when you read here that in verse 2 it says the word of God came to John. And then in verse 3 it says and 
he came into all the districts. Sometimes, you know, Scripture just seems to just flip through these things and as if they're not important. The Word of God came to John. <laughs> There's nothing more important than that in our lives or in any man or woman's life. The Word of God came to John. And so John then came to the area that he'd been called to. And so just in these few little lines, you're getting something that's very, very significant, is that God's call to John, he responded to. <laughs> that's basically what it was. God had put his finger on John, because you remember going back to the time when John was in the womb of his mother, and when he heard the voice of the mother of the Lord Jesus Christ, he leapt in the womb. And of course, that gives you a picture of a lot of things, but primarily that John was special. And even before he came out of the womb, he was recognizing something of God. So he was set apart, there's no doubt about that, he was different. But I think the teaching for us is that all of us have opportunity where the Word of God comes to us. The Word of God being the inspired Word of God, the voice of God, the person of Christ, the Word that became flesh and dwelt amongst us, is that when we hear the Word of God, then we should be like John and respond. If again, if you look at the life of John, it's what are you being called to? It's not, God doesn't call everybody for, the, for special uh, attention, if you like, or special position. He calls us to salvation. But as a, if John was called to be in a very privileged position of speaking about the coming of Christ. That's also something that we've been called to. And we don't need to act the way John did because that was unique for that occasion. And it was unique for that time when the Lord Jesus Christ was here on earth. But I also just to leave it with you, there's more in it for us that whilst he was the most supreme of all the prophets, um, he was somebody who had a specific purpose in life, and so have we. The word came to John, and it says that John came, and he came preaching repentance. A baptism of repentance. I believe that that time in Israel was probably one of the worst in Israel's history as far as a relationship to God was concerned. They were far away from God. And although they were a nation who recognized God and obviously uh, believed in God and were trying um, in their own way, distorted as it was by that time, uh, to follow the laws of God or the laws of Moses, they had got so far away from what God really originally planned that they were 
as he refers to later, a, a nest of vipers. Uh, the majority of them were just uh, out for themselves. He saw the need in the preparation. He went to the place that I believe God called him to, which was Jordan. And the significance of that place was that was the place where God took Moses and told him, this is where you're going to cross into the promised land. This is where you're going to come and dwell, and I will dwell amongst you. This is where that uh, God led Joshua to lead Israel across the Jordan. And is that significant? Well, you read into it what you like. Um, there must be a purpose. There's always a purpose in God's designs. When he says something, he said to John, that's where to go. The, the baptism of John in the River Jordan had a significance because it was towards repentance. And in everything in life, and it's when you go back to our salvation, repentance is the first thing that has to happen. Is that the recognition of our sinfulness. And in all our dealings with God, there has to be repentance before there is forgiveness. Otherwise, forgiveness can't happen. And we can con each other, of course, in what is genuine repentance. Because that's from the heart. But what comes out of the heart has got to be seen in our actions. And of course, what he was calling them to do was first of all, repent in your heart and then get into the water of baptism where you can show that you to, to people who can't see your heart that you're genuine, that you're prepared to do this before other people, which is symbolic, of course, but it tells people who can't see the heart. Of course, God can, but he knows the genuineness of it. And of course, we should never be um, forgetful of the ultimate judgment that applies to all. That we can con man, but you can't con God. So, John was putting, suggesting, and in fact, and demanding that anybody who is genuine in their repentance to go and get washed in front of everybody. And now you saying, go and change your life. Now that you are genuinely repentant, we should see the evidence of that. And of course, that is the same as what we are teaching in salvation, that um, the need for repentance, you need to see that you're a sinner. You need to see that you're filthy before God. You need to see that you've got no access to God. You have no future. You are dead. Repent. Then you will receive forgiveness. And then your life changes. And of course, that still goes on in our disciple pathway. That as we drift, as we fall away, there is still that continuous need for the genuine repentance, for the continuous forgiveness that we receive from our Father God all the time. Because not there isn't one of us who has not let him down. There isn't one of us who has not sinned after salvation. There is not one of us worthy of it. And therefore, this recognition of this continuous cleansing is also, I think, 
evidence here and this this is just the beginning to these people because the Lord was coming and things were going to change and I think this is what he was teaching now when we get to the, the verses 4, 5 and 6 in this, book, in, in this chapter it's referring back to Isaiah well first of all to Malachi and then to Isaiah chapter 40 and it's quoting what was said then. It's always interesting when you read back on them because of the difficulties between Hebrew and Greek, you don't actually get it spot on. <laughs> and uh, it's sometimes interesting to compare the two and to understand, imagine you were reading the Old Testament for the first time and you didn't have a New Testament. You think, well, what would you have made of that? <laughs> And, and it's something it's kind of understanding why people weren't as au <laughs> as we sometimes think they should have been uh, when the Lord was coming. Because I wonder if I had Isaiah in front of me without the help of the Holy Spirit, <laughs> without the, the teaching and the guiding of others, would I have picked up on that? That this is referring to John the Baptist. Prepare the way it says, make ready the way of the Lord. The Lord Jesus Christ described himself as the way. And he goes on to talk about that the way of the Lord, that every ravine shall be filled, or every valley shall be filled. Every mountain shall be laid low. The crooked shall become straight and the rough road smooth. This is, uh, again, John saw his role, as he'd been called to in preparation, was to make these things level. That the people who were down, the people who didn't think anything of themselves, maybe particularly the poor, that John's purposes were to raise them up. Because to tell them the Messiah's coming, and he's come for them. And all these people who were up in the mountains, <laughs> in in um, spiritual sense, who thought they were great, the, the scribes and the Pharisees, who thought there was nobody better than them, they were the intelligent people, they were this, the sons of Abraham, they were to be brought low. And they were to be compared with Christ. They were to be directed to their sinful nature and it would be level you know it's interesting that um, that when you when you read about uh, the paths being made straight and etc that it's it's referring you know to an area uh, where the Jordan runs into the Red Sea and when he talks it's a place that a Hebrew word called Araba, which I just looked it up and it means laid flat. And when the waters, uh, the Jordan apparently, I've never been there, meanders its way down through Israel and then comes to this area, the Araba, which is just flat and it runs unrestricted right down into the Red Sea. And that area is known as the Arabah. And um, we think that was 
the area where John was baptising. At that point, he would have been able to look and say, like, the River Jordan here is unrestricted, going into the Red Sea. This is what I'm doing. I'm making flat. I'm getting levelling the field here. That this, when the Lord Jesus Christ comes, he's going to treat everybody the same. There'll be no mountains. There'll be no valleys. It's, everybody will be the same. He's come to die for all. Because we're all sinners. In verse 6, it says that all flesh or all mankind shall see the salvation of God. In You read about in, in Isaiah, it talks about that the glory of God would be revealed. So the word salva salvation is used in the New Testament. The word glory is used in the Old Testament. And they both mean the same. Because they're being uh, used in the same context here. And of course, when you think about that a little bit, that in the Old Testament it's talking about God's glory is being revealed. At this precise moment in time, what is God's glory? It's God's salvation. And what is God's salvation? It's Christ. So it's referring to the same person. It's referring to the two things that are becoming one as we read them. And that the glory of God and to, is our salvation. And it's something, again, that we should never lose sight of. That that is so pertinent and something that we should always try and understand as to because it's marvellous to think that God's glory is us God's glory I should say is us as seen in Christ <laughs> not our sinful self but our salvation and our salvation comes in Christ comes through Christ and that's God's glory. And so the two come together. And although it's two different words and it looks as if it's like a, a, a wrong translation, <laughs> it means the same thing. And it's important that we put these two things together. John referred to these people that were coming as a brood of vipers. <laughs> you know, he must have been a remarkable guy to get away with that. Because, you know, you think... How can you talk to people like that <laughs> and get away with it? Because such was his power, though, and such was his attraction that even although, as I described at the beginning of my talk, that he must have been the most, the oddest of characters, he drew people. And I think, again, it's significant. It's not what you see. It's not the outward appearance. It's what was coming out of his mouth which was the word of God. And that was the attraction. And of course, that was the shadow of the great man, Christ, that was coming after him. Exactly the same. There was nothing about Christ that was attractive. There was nothing that would make people think, oh, that's a good image. I'll, I'll follow this man because he looks good. 
It was what came out of his mouth and what his actions were that attracted him. And that same with John. John, just a shadow, though, of Christ. But anyway, he refers to these people as vipers. And it shows you again the grace of God, because despite the fact that John knew, again, probably being led by the Spirit, that he would know that these people, he would know some that weren't genuine. He would be uh, seeing those, and he would know their lifestyle. And he was saying, who told you about the wrath to come? This is what John was preaching. There was a day of judgment coming. And there are some people not going to survive that. And he's talking to Israel, of course, at that time. <coughs> uh, it's got reference to us later, but it's, um, he's talking about them. And yet even the grace of God comes out and saying, well, even now, you brood of vipers, even now, if you're genuinely repentant, you can be saved, you'll be forgiven. But he was letting them know that he knew who they were, and he's letting them know also that by it's their actions would prove whether they were genuine or not. And so these people were coming to him and they were asking him, what do we do? And that's a, a, a very good sign, of course, to begin with. It's not what will they do, which he tended to get from the scribes and the Pharisees, looking at what will this man do, or what will these people do? Or, I mean, we are okay, aren't we? We know the, not the law. We follow the law. These people were saying it, genu- it would appear genuine. What? should I do? And he referred to that and he dealt with it. He dealt with the the specifics that were pertinent to these people that were asking, even the soldiers. He knew exactly how they lived their life and that they couldn't be genuine in their repentance if they were going to carry on with their sinful actions. So there had to be evidence of the acceptance of genuine repentance and the belief that they had been genuinely forgiven and therefore their life should change. And that's again the the same with us. If you see somebody who claims to be a Christian, if you're in in touch with and talking to somebody who claims to be a follower of Jesus and then acts right out of character that's nothing like Jesus, you've got to question, this is odd. (laughs) Can this be true? Is this genuine repentance? Is this man or woman forgiven? Because from their actions, there doesn't seem to be any evidence of it. Obviously, there are things like that. It's hard for us to judge. We can only judge on the outward appearance. The Lord knows the heart. John only baptised with water. Jesus, as as John said, is coming. And he will baptise with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Interesting. That baptism of the Holy Spirit was obviously something that you read about in Acts chapter 2, where the Lord Jesus Christ, when he eventually started his ministry, he taught that, that he had to go away. Because when he went away, the Holy Spirit would come. 
and the Holy Spirit would indwell those that uh, had accepted who Christ was, the Son of God, accepted that he had died for them on Calvary. The Holy Spirit would indwell them. And that happened in the upper room in Acts chapter 2. And it was seen at that time to be visible in the flames of fire. That was how the Holy Spirit was evidenced and physically for people to see for that beginning. Today, if people are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, it should be seen in their actions. Because we can't see. There's no flames of fire going into somebody who accepts the Lord Jesus Christ. But you should be able to see a change in their life. So, when the Lord Jesus Christ came, his baptism was going to be the far greater than the baptism of John. And John, when he was asked to come, are you the Messiah? He said, Def- definitely not. Um, I'm not even worthy to loosen his latch yet. And he might have been the greatest prophet that this world had ever had, but compared to Christ, he was nothing. And he was only preparing the way. I think that's the attitude that we should have, you know, that in our lives as disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are nothing. Uh, if we've been called to pave the way, the way for what? Well, the way for the coming of the Lord, again, to the ear. And to pave the way, our job is to preach. Our job is to teach. Our job is to proclaim the good news in whatever aspect God has called you to. And that's your Jordan calling. That's where John was called to. We are called in uh, 2,000 years later in the sphere in which we've been put. And our neighbours, our friends, is that where we should be looking to, where we've been called to proclaim the coming again of the Lord Jesus. To proclaim the day of judgment. Is that day still coming, still to come? When the people um, were asking about him and he said that he wasn't fit, he, he talked about this winnowing fork that was in his hand and he was clearing the way. The threat, he, caught, he, looked, he used the, um, the picture of the threshing floor, gathering the wheat into his barn and he'll burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. That is something that sounds horrendous and is. And it's something we've got to take note of. It's easy, I know, for, for us sometimes to think, well, I'm saved, I'm born again. This doesn't apply to me. Um, that's true from me as far as our sins are concerned because the Lord bore them and he bore our punishment and we are free from that. We still have to give an account. There's still a judgment day for us. We have to give an account for ourselves, not for our sin. We give an account for our discipleship, for what we have done for the Lord. John the Baptist was somebody, again, I think that we can look at and just do this in closing. Um, As somebody we can follow uh, as a brilliant preacher, a man who set himself apart. These are things that we can 
um, learn from. Uh, his earnestness, that it seems that he only had one purpose in life, and this was it. He don't read of anything else. Um, he, see, he was very practical. He had no love of money, obviously. He just lived off the, the land. He just uh, lived a very frugal life. And yet he had an appeal because he spoke of his knowledge of God. He spoke of the coming Christ. And that seemed to be all he purposed in saying. And that made him attractive. And of course, that's the same for any preacher. If you get a preacher standing up here talking about himself, you soon fall asleep. <laughs> uh, you certainly would if I was talking about myself. But the thing is, a preacher's job is to show forth Christ. And if people are going away from a, a preacher and all they say, oh, I like that antidote, I like that little story you told me, or uh, that guy's pretty good, isn't he? He's pretty clever in the way he uses expressions, etc. That's a total waste of time. We should be listening to preachers and coming away and thinking of Christ and having seen Christ and having heard Christ. That is the purpose of a preacher. And that was what John did. He didn't do anything else. And the thing was, as he exhorted and he pointed people to Christ, and he was, it says in verse 18 that he was um, very varied in his preaching and didn't go into all the detail of it. But then, at the end of this section, it tells you John's life came to a sudden end. It's God decided that his role had finished. And Herod took him and imprisoned him. And as you know, eventually beheaded him. And you think, what, what an outcome. But it seems to me to, to speak volumes of the the position of the guy that that was the, his purpose was to prepare the way of the Lord and then go to heaven <laughs> then go to be with the Lord there was no room for anything else in his life and it was almost as if God allowed that to happen well he did um, he didn't set him up in, in great worldly wealth to enjoy a, a, a long life of uh, luxury or whatever wasn't his purpose there was nothing of self there he did his job and God took him and again it was, it was also pointing to the shadow of Christ that his suffering going into prison his being wrongly accused by somebody who hated him and was a sinful man was just pointing to Christ so again the whole life the tenor of his um, um, preaching, his exhortation, and then his sudden demise was all pointing towards Christ.